Um, well, I'd like to begin by telling you a story. It's a kind of a sad story, and it's a guy by the name of Jim Marshall. Jim Marshall is a linebacker, and he played football for the Minnesota Vikings. And now, in a particular game with the, uh, that Minnesota was playing, it was against the 49ers, there's this uh, okay. <laughs> single woos from a small, small crowd. <laughs> Woo! Woo! Such is life, and the best kept secret in West L.A. Uh, you have the Minnesota Vikings, right, and they're playing the 49ers. And, uh, and the 49ers quarterback, he throws a pass to the receiver, Bill Kilmer, who catches it, and he starts to run. But as soon as he starts running, a Vikings defender hits him hard, like really hard. He doesn't die. He lives. But the ball gets loosed, it, 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 and it's called a fumble. That's right, a fumble. And, and it hits him so hard that there's a fumble. And Jim Marshall is there, and he picks up the ball. And he's like, I got it, scoop and score, right? He grabs the ball, he starts running, and he, no one's catching him, and no one can, they're all chasing him. They're like, oh my God, Jim Marshall, you're so fast. And he gets into the end zone, and the problem is, is that Jim Marshall got confused, he ran into the wrong end zone, and he scored a safety for the 49ers. I know, and here's him sad. I know, right? Looks like, you know that feeling when you mess up bad, and you're like, oh, I'm gonna be sick. That's Jim Marshall right there. Why am I telling you this story? This is one of those moments where if I just ended the sermon, it would be hilarious. <laughs> this story is a metaphor, okay? This story is a metaphor. Why so many people, uh, or what so many people are thinking and doing every single day. All of us, some of us, people in the world today work really hard to win. Uh, to live a full life, a significant life, to truly make an impact. But so often, without realizing it, sometimes people head in the wrong direction. They think they're doing the right thing, but it ends up being the wrong thing. Uh, they're scoring points, but maybe they're scoring points for the wrong team. And today we're going to be wrapping up a series that we called Hero, and it's about and how we've been learning from Jesus about how to be a hero maker of others, that the greatest thing that we could do is not to be the hero ourselves, but to call out and make others the hero of their journey. Imagine Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker. Imagine Harry Potter and Dumbledore, that's right. Uh, what's another one? Imagine... Batman and Alfred, that's right. There's no Batman without Alfred. That's what we're doing. We're trying to become hero makers of other people. True greatness lies in being a hero maker. Now, I love to win, okay? Uh, how many of you love to win? Uh, you can raise your hand. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and nobody loves to lose. I love to win. And if you're familiar with different personality tests, strength-based leadership, or maybe the Enneagram, if you know the Enneagram, it's uh, sometimes referred to as a Christian horoscope. 
uh, by me. <laughs> I'm the only one that says that, actually. <laughs> you're like, what's your Enneagram number? And you're like, okay, chill, all right. But if you take these personalities, you're like, okay, I get it. I'm a three. I'm a three. I mean, I know what it is, but, you know, we're not going to talk about it. So to take strengths-based leadership, maybe you've done, you know, all the things. You find out what you're like and who you are. And what my wife and I have found is over the years that we like to win. It's part of our personality. We like to win. It's something that we share. And we're not sure if this is a blessing or a curse, but we both like to win. Or in some cases, we just really hate to lose. And if there's anything I would say that there's worth competing for in life, it's got to be to compete to win in life. Winning in life feels good, right? Winning at the end of this saying, I won or I'm winning, that is a good feeling. But why does it matter that we know how to win in life? Well, I think that so many people really haven't been able to figure this out. Or if they do figure it out, maybe they figure it out in the wrong way or they figure it out too late in life. And what I've found is that a lot of times winning in life and losing in life or winning at the wrong thing in life is determined by how we choose to keep score. How we keep score reveals the kind of game that we're playing. The way we keep score can often keep us from winning. Some people believe that winning, the way they keep score, is the right job, the right career, the right promotion, and that you finally start making that cash the way you always knew you could. That you start to make money in the way that you thought you'd deserve or you, you dream that you should. Some people think that winning the scorecard is the right car, the right make, the right model. Do you have yours in your mind? I have mine in mine. Am I the only one? Am I the only one that has a car in mind? Okay, so, or some people think it's um, that particular house and that particular neighborhood with the pool or whatever it is that you want in that house. And other times, people, the way they determine the scorecard, the whether they're winning in life is whether they find Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. And then they go and have a bunch of little rights. I mean, then you'd be really winning in life. And to be honest with you, I find that too often that I keep score um, based on whether I'm getting the right kind of recognition of what I think I'm doing. Uh, if I, and, and I think I'll keep score if I personally feel that I'm being successful in what I'm pursuing at the moment. That's how I keep, keep score. But these measurements, these scorecards, they're so subjective. They're so arbitrary. And the truth is, is that we all have stated and unstated game plans for winning at life. And they're not bad ideas. There's nothing wrong with a great car. There's nothing wrong with doing well in your career. They're not bad ideas. And I don't necessarily think that people that have these goals in mind have bad intentions. I just think that it's not what it actually truly takes to win. And it seems like every once in a while, in time, in life, in the world, every once in a while, we get a wake-up call to our scorecard, whether it's actually working or not. And sometimes that wake-up call is personal. Sometimes it's global. Past few years have definitely been a wake-up call for some of us. It was a, definitely a wake-up call for the church with the pandemic, the American church, and this church. We basically had to restart. We look at some of the political things that have been happening 
since, I don't know, forever, but, all, you know, 2016, 2020, January 6th, this president, that president, this party, all these things. You look at a fragile economy. You look at some of the industries that come and go. You look at strikes that happen. Like, we have these moments where, like, we're like, okay, is the scorecard right? Is this, is this working? Is my political party in power? Is that the right scorecard? Is your political party in power the right scorecard? Of course you think it is. Of course I think it is. Perhaps some of us in the past few years have experienced a personal setback, a loss, a pain, a broken relationship. Something that's just like we did, ever, or, or just that nagging feeling that you're not quite getting there. You ever have that? And it's like you did everything right, but people did things outside of, uh, that did things that didn't help you and served against, or worked against you. And you did everything right, and it just didn't work. These personal setbacks, these tectonic shifts in the plates of life, in culture, in politics, in society, in media, your mom, whatever. These setbacks, they can cause us to pause and think, is this the right game plan? Do I have the right game plan? I think one of the dangers that we face in life is not pausing long enough to assess whether or not we have the right game plan for ourselves, for our choices. And I think we love assessing everyone else's game. We love assessing everyone else's game plan. I mean, secretly I do. I don't, I'm not going to come up here and say, hey, let's talk about, you know, someone else's game plan. We don't do that. But privately, like, oh, I love looking at their game plan. But what if we were to pause long enough to assess our own game plan? I think one of the dangers is that we don't stop long enough to pause, to assess, to evaluate our personal scorecards, the way we measure how we're winning in life. And today we're going to look at Scripture because Jesus explains how to win at life. And he actually gives this really unique scorecard. And it's really fun, and it's really hard, but it's also simple. Simple but hard, good, and now all that. Did I just do a contradiction? Not really. It's simple to understand, but when you get into it, you're like, ooh, that's going to take a shift. And we get it from the story of Mark. Mark uh, was one of the guys that wrote one of the four Gospels, the four stories about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark was the briefest. He was to the point. If you go to Mark chapter 1, the first chapter in the book of Mark, it takes him like a handful of verses, and Jesus is already baptized and healing and yelling at the disciples, no, I'm not doing that. Uh, other, other, other stories, it's like this long account. Mark's very to the point. He's kind of writing to the Romans, who are kind of to the point kind of people. And so Mark, he tells a scene about James and John, two of Jesus' closest followers. They quietly approach Jesus. They're tiptoeing up. It becomes clear that they have a scheme in mind. And so they start a conversation like anyone would start a conversation. 
They say it this way. They say, then James and John, son of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Pause. That's kind of an awesome question, right? Uh, try that with your boss this week. Hey, can we get a few minutes? And they're like, yeah, what's going on? Come in the office. And they close the door. They're like, I want you to do whatever I ask. How's that going to go for you? How well is that going to go for you? Sometimes our daughter, Marin, she's 10. She'll say this. She's, uh, she'll be like, I want to ask you a question, but you have to promise to say yes first, Dad. And, and, and I'm like, ooh, I'm smart enough. I'm not very smart. But I'm smart enough not to say yes, because you never know. You'll end up... Anyway, so James and John, <laughs> they try a similar tactic here. And Jesus generally is no fool. He knows not to just write the blank check right here. And so you can imagine, Je I think Jesus had a great sense of humor. I'll be really disappointed to find out if he doesn't. But I think he had a great sense of humor. I think he had a smirk on his face. And I think he was like, he's like, so they come up to him and they're like, Jesus, we want to ask you something. Will you do whatever we ask? And he's like, um, and this is what he says. He says, well, what do you, what do you want? <laughs> okay, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. So they reply. They're like, all right, cool. Step one done. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Whew. Now you have to remember at this time that when people sat at people's right and left, especially it was considered to be a place of prominence. So if you were at a dinner party, there'd be like a long table, and there'd be the head guy or head girl at the, te at the front of the table, probably guy, I mean, if we're talking <laughs> patriarch. So you had table guy, and then on the left and the right, those would be the two most prominent places, and then the person next to him would be a little less prominent, and then, and then the person at the end, uh, he's just lucky he got invited, okay? So you've got that. Whether it was a dinner party, whether it was some sort of gathering, or whether it was a throne room. And a throne room would be, there's a king, you got all the guards, you got the colonnades, uh, you know, and the, and the curtains that are nice. And uh, there's the throne, and then there would be a spot on the left and right. Those two spots. Those were the most prominent spots for anybody. And they recognized, Jesus, you're going to be the king of this world and the next world. So we're asking you, can we sit at your left or your right? And if you sat at the right or the left, we would have the most prominence of all, of all the people. And we're asking you. We're just coming out and straight asking you for this. So James and John, these brothers... They asked Jesus for this. They asked for the highest privilege. Can we please have this? They want to be first and second in the kingdom. Okay? But why? Because they thought this was a good way to keep score. This was their scorecard. This was their rubric. This is their worldview. So why wouldn't they ask? Wouldn't you? That's right, Esther. I would. And there's these other ten disciples. They're sitting there. They're like, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> the other ten disciples, they're listening. Can you imagine what they felt? Can we, have the, can we have the number one, number two spots? They're sitting there. And actually, Mark records it. This is what he says. He says, when the ten heard about this, this is, if you drop down to verse 41, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant. 
with James and John. Why are they angry? Are they angry because this is an absurd request? Maybe. It's possible. Or do you think that they were angry, they were indignant, because they didn't think to ask first? I kind of wonder. I kind of wonder. But the point is, is that in this moment, the disciples... They're all just kind of clueless. And I don't know that I would have done much better in that situation. If that was the scorecard, if that's what we all believed was what it took to win at life, then I don't know if I would have done any different. I'm sure you would have done better. But they're kind of clueless. And they had been with Jesus for three years. And it seems like they have no idea on how to win. Or how to win in the kingdom. They seem to be confused about how Jesus keeps score. They're still using the world scorecard that says, hey, if I'm going to win, I have to have as much power, I have to have as much influence, I have to be in the right position, I have to have as much prestige. And basically they're saying, I have to make sure that I am the hero of the story. So Jesus, a great hero maker, he sits them down and he says to his followers, here's what it looks like to win. And what we see is that Jesus' scorecard is very different. In 42, he says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Pause. What Jesus is saying is, here's what it looks like out there. We all know what it looks like out there. We know what it looks like out in the world. It's all about power. It's all about prestige. It's all about powering up and making sure that you're the one with the authority. You're in charge. You've got the position of prominence. We know that that's what that's all about. We've all experienced that. But he says, you know what? It's not going to be like that in my kingdom. It's not going to be like that with you. We're going to do something different. And so he responds in verse 42. I'm going to read it again and, then, and add some more verses. He says, Jesus called them together and he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Back in the day, ruling, not serving, was the way to win. But Jesus says, if that's what you're chasing, you're running in the wrong direction. You're running for the wrong team. You're running into the wrong end zone, and you're using the wrong scorecard. He flips how we think our natural understanding. He flips our natural understanding of how to win at life. And, his state, and in his statement, Jesus takes the two lowest rungs on the social ladder, and then he elevates them uh, up. Why does he do? He elevates them to the highest levels of all. 
Servant and slave, nobody wanted to be a servant or a slave back then. Nobody aspired to that. Nobody wants to do that now. That carried no power, no prestige, and no long-term benefits, okay? And yet, in Jesus' kingdom, he says, those of you who serve will be the greatest. Serving is the way to win in the way of Jesus. What we see here is that in order to win like a hero maker, it requires a seismic shift in how we think and how we define winning. Winning like a hero maker requires a shift from counting my own successes to counting the successes of others. It's the move from counting our own successes to counting the successes of others. It's a shift from me first to others first. It's moving from the me perspective first to another person's perspective first. It's the role of taking on a servant and elevating the people around me. And this is hard, folks, because everything in our culture says elevate yourself. If you need any examples, Nicole and I will show you our Spotify rap music playlist. It's very self-focused. <laughs> It is very much about elevating yourself and climbing to the top of whatever mountain of cash you think you deserve. And it is very different to take the role of a servant and to elevate the people around me and start to view their success as your own success. So practically, what does it look like? Well, there's different ways that you can elevate and help others win, which is in fact making, which is, at, which is basically winning at the kingdom. Time, resources, work, home, faith, and relationships. These are some of the top areas I want you to consider as we leave today. For example, how do you use your time? What if you became, what if you and I, what if we became less concerned about our own agenda? And like, what if we prioritize the agendas of others? I don't know about you. I get so focused on the things that I need to do and get done. I need to get my agenda done. I just feel like I do. And I know you do too. But what if we began to see our time differently to make space for other people's agendas? Another way to think about this is our resources. How would we use our resources with this scorecard? Think about your finances, your possessions. I already mentioned time, anything that you might have. I mean, think about it. What if we prioritize the needs of others above our own, the needs of others, maybe globally, worldwide, or even locally? Think about your work. What would it look like? How do you think your life at work would be different if you move from the me first to the others first perspective? And it became less about achieving your own successes and instead elevating the successes of others around you. I know that's really hard, but moving to, moving, just think about that, elevating the success of others around you so that they achieve things. That being a part of the scorecard. Imagine what home would look like if you started looking for opportunities to serve the people you live with, uh, rather than to be served. And then faith. How would your faith be different? If you saw your church community as a place to contribute and to give back, rather than to be a place that you come to and get fed or maybe all of your needs met. What if the other people, and I don't know how you feel about you, um, but like, what if the other people in this room like actually needed you? 
you know? And like, what if, what if God designed you in a special way that only you could bring what you bring to a room like this? What if that were true? I actually believe that's true. And so counting the successes of others and winning in the scorecard by serving, sometimes serving is showing up and being present for people in a room like this or present for the people in your workplace or present for the people in your home and so on. It's a different shift where we serve others. I kind of mentioned relationships a little bit. That'd be the same thing. Um, so let me tell you a story. Uh, lately, uh, the Pacific City Church team and I have been realizing that the way to win... By the way, I saw multiple people taking pictures of the slides. If you ever need a picture afterwards just to come see me, we can put it back up for you. <laughs> All right, from the top. The Pac City leadership team and I have been thinking about how to win at this church and to win in church planning. We started this church in 2018, met for about a year and a half. Uh, the pandemic totally just... Uh, it's like a bombshell went off. We had to rethink and redo everything after the pandemic. And the world changed through the pandemic, right? Um, but the way, we thinking, the way we have been thinking about church and church planting is different than the way the world says that we need to think about winning as an organization. What we're doing here, what Jesus has called this group of people to and our leadership team is distinctly different than what we, the normal measurements we should use if we're just building an organization in the regular world. Do you understand what I'm saying here? And the traditional way to win as a nonprofit organization is to think about the three Bs. Does everyone know what the three Bs are? Yeah, three Bs. Buildings. Bucks and butts. And that's how you measure. Buildings. Tell me about your latest building project as an organization. Did you get the thing with the glass and the thing with the thing? And then uh, bucks. Like, tell us, what is your annual revenue? How much are you able to give away? And the revenue isn't just so you build up yourself. You're like, oh, our, our lead pastor makes 800000 a year, which to me seems like a lot. Uh, you know, between you and I. Uh, but uh, 5.50 is in the normal range, right? <laughs> Just kidding. This sermon won't age well. So bucks, because what do bucks represent? Bucks represent our ability to have an impact in the city and in the world and so on. And then, of course, we measure butts, which is essentially how many people are in the chairs. And are there more people in the chairs this year than there were last year? And do we show an up and to the right growth curve? There's nothing wrong with those buildings, bucks and butts. There's nothing wrong with those things happening. And if we're, but, the, but, the, but the sentiment, the general thought from culture is that if we're winning in those three areas, we're winning as an organization. It means we're winning. But in this process of launching and relaunching after the pandemic, we have grown uh, a stronger conviction towards something else. One is faithfulness to the call. 
that God has not called us to be fruitful. We are not responsible for fruitfulness. We're responsible for faithfulness. We are called to be faithful to what we've been called to. And God creates the fruit. We see this in John chapter 15. Or John, uh, in John chapter 15, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, Remain in me and I will remain in you and you will bear much fruit. Okay, what does that mean? Jesus is saying, you don't make any fruit. I make fruit. I produce good things in your life. You don't know, you don't know how to do that. You can't do that. It's me that works through you to produce those good things. So what do you, I'm asking you to do? He's saying, remain in me. Stay connected to me. And if you stay connected to me, the byproduct of your connectedness will result in fruit. And it's the same for us. There's a call to faithfulness. There's a call to invest in people. And what we have realized is that Los Angeles will always be a transient place. West L.A. will always be fairly transient. People will come and go. And we need to shift. And what we decided is the shift that we need to make in order to serve people of this church and this community is to make heroes of others, to call out what we see in others, to bless what we see in others, to commission, to think like a hero maker, but also to be open-handed with them. Regardless if they sit in these rows or if they leave and they go down the church and they're all mad, they go down to a church down the street. They go to Vintage. It's a great church, by the way. They go, forget Pack City. I'm going to Vintage. Gary has a British accent. And they go there, and it's bigger and more fun. It doesn't matter. What we do is we are committed to bless and encourage and raise up and serve everyone that we possibly can. And we're committed to serving others, even if that doesn't help us. Even if the people we serve and lead, they leave us and they move to Texas or they buy large mansions on the outskirts of big cities in Florida or Philadelphia or wherever uh, they go. Like, you know how it goes. They're like, I'm tired of the politics and I'm tired of living in an apartment. And then they move to the other side of the country and then they send you a picture of their 20 billion square foot house and they're like, we only paid $5 for this. And... <laughs> And you're like, wow. I'm like, but do you have a pool? And they're like, glad you asked. And it's like a massive pool. And then like they have a big screen that pops up at the thing in the pool. And they're like, again, we can get you one for $4.99. The economy's in the tank. And you're like, oh, I've been living in 700 square 50, 750 square feet for eight years. And I, I, am, I am paying in gold. <laughs> I'm putting nuggets across and I uh, yeah anyway so and these people they move on uh, and that that is going to be the nature of a majority of the relationships in your life I'm not putting that on you I'm just saying that's what is talk to anyone here who is actually a born and raised Angelino they will tell you like the people that come and go uh, yeah I gotta can I get an amen from Marie in the back but what if the scorecard was different? What if we just weren't accumulating here? Like, what if we could get comfortable enough uh, with who God has made us to be, who God has called us to be, and we make heroes of others for whatever amount of time we have them? You see, no matter what the context or situation, when we flip the scorecard and we recognize that serving others is the real way to win, it changes everything. 
kind of a, it kind of almost eliminates a stress that we feel to produce certain things in our life. You know what I mean? We're committed to others, even if it doesn't help us. There's a really great quote from someone I want to read. Uh, this is Bob Buford. He's done some things. I've, I'm out of time, so I can't tell you more about him. But Bob Buford has this quote, my fruit grows on other people's trees. And this is something we've been saying around the leadership team. You're like, hey, whatever happened to that person? Oh, they're, they moved to the other side of the country. And then we just go, our fruit grows on other people's trees. We invested in them. They grew. They're walking in life with Jesus. They have a healthier marriage. They like their kids a little bit or more than they did uh, for this year. And we are a part of that. And now they're off at some church that's really great somewhere, you know, in some other city or, or other place. Uh, my fruit grows on other people's trees. Our fruit grows on other people's trees. And that is the vision that we have, that we can call forth what God is doing in other people and that you would be able to do this. There's people that you live around that you can do this with. There's people that you can do this with at your workplace. You can bless someone. You can make a hero out of someone who works for you and then they can pass you and go on and they can leverage that and their resume to get a job somewhere else and you can say, I am going to serve others just as Jesus served me and my fruit now grows on other people's trees. You can do that. This is a better scorecard and it frees us from some of the trappings of these earthly scorecards. So, what I'm inviting you to do is to win like a hero maker, to see in others what they can't see in themselves, to take time to pour into others, not just to fill their cup, uh, but to empty yours. You understand what I'm saying? You are not responsible to fill somebody up with everything that they think they need. Why? Because people are broken and they will keep asking you for more and more and more and you can't do it. All right, so what I'm asking you to do as a hero maker is not to worry about filling their cup, but to emptying yours, to bless people and to send them out to do good things, and ultimately to change the scorecard, to see that when you invest in someone it, it, and it doesn't work out for you, that is okay. Investing in people that go on to do other things is a good thing. It is what it means to be a hero maker, and it's the most counterintuitive way to win. So let me close with this. Jesus, what I love most about Jesus is that he himself modeled this for us. One of the most important things that he ever said was that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus just didn't talk about being a hero maker. He modeled it, he lived it, and he was willing to die for it. And he did die for it. He gave his life for it. And by doing so, he empowers us to do the same. And he gives us this winning way or a way to win at life. Amen? Why don't we all stand?